you're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Today's episode is all about soil. So I thought, who better to get on than Dr. Samantha Grover? who's a lecturer at RMIT University and is also president of the Victorian branch of Soil Science Australia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sam. Thanks, Daniel. Fantastic to be here. I love talking about soil. Yeah, I've seen some of your talks on YouTube and you really do love speaking about soil. And I think people also really love listening to you talk about soil because your passion is just so tangible. Cool. Well, I hope that we can... uh share some soil stories today. I do think we'll be able to. So can you please explain what exactly is soil and where does it come from? Soil is the foundation of our lives, really. Our food, our clothes, even aspects of the air that we breathe come from the soil. But I think you're asking, Dan, more of a practical question, like what is soil? So Well, I like to say soil is life. Soil is actually a combination of physical broken down rock particles. So you might, you would be well aware, and I'm sure many of your listeners would also be well aware of the um, sand, silt and clay, the, the different size particles within soil. But that is only the beginning because the air, the water and the biology, the macro and microbiology in soils is also absolutely critical part of soils. Okay, so we've got silt, sand and clay that are actually broken down parent rock material and we've got some other ingredients as well. You've said air and water. Can you explain a little bit more about just how the balance of all of those elements together makes a big impact on the quality of the soil that you're working with? Yeah, thanks, Dan. That's such a great question because I think because we can't usually very easily see what's going on beneath the ground, People tend to think soil is soil is soil. But actually, there are so many different kinds of soil. I mean, the Australian Soil Classification recognises 14 different soil orders, and each of those can be broken down into many finer gradations. But there's just such a big variety of then possible conditions of the soil, depending on that balance of the different mineral particles that are there, the different particle sizes, but also the air and the water And I can't stress the importance of the organic matter. That really is the engine room driving the life in soils. So when we talk about organic material, I guess we can talk about living organic material and dead organic material. Is that right? Yeah. So I mostly focus on the dead organic material. So the dead plant roots, dead um, leaves that fall on the surface of the soil, but also the parts of roots that they emit out into the soil, so root exudates, root, different kinds of um, root mucuses. But of course, the living component of the soil organic matter is just as important. And that ranges, people often don't think about it, but things as big as wombats, snakes and lizards live in the soil and have a huge impact on moving around um, different components within the soil. Then there's things that you might more traditionally associate with being soil biota like worms or termites, ants. But then, of course, the ones that we can't see, the tiny, tiny soil microbes, they're actually the ones doing most of the work. Can we get success from any plant in any soil type or 
do we really need to be smart about which plants we're putting where? Dan, I reckon you've probably got a lot more experience in this space than I do, but I would say that you can't just put any plant any in any soil type um, and expect to have success. And I think that's where a lot of um, home gardeners find disappointment because they buy a beautiful looking plant from a garden shop and they take it home and they stick it where they think it would look nice. But that is not necessarily a part of their garden which is conducive to that particular plan. And so you can change the soil. You know, you can even, in a, in, a, in a small area, you can go so far as to change soil texture by adding more sand to make your soil drain better. You can add more clay to make it, you know, more water retentive. But, and you, of course, you can change the chemistry of soil by adding lime or sulfur. But ultimately, you're fighting against nature if you really ignore the constraints of your environment and try and put any plant anywhere. So it is good to have to have an understanding and to consider slope, the soil type that's there to begin with, the amount of light in different parts of your property before you just go whacking your favourite plant in there. So there's an advice that we like to say in horticulture, plant the right plant in the right place. And I think you hit the nail on the head there when you say sort of pay attention to any slopes or what you've got existing in the landscape just to make your life easier on yourself. Dan, I love it. You you say plant the right place in the right the right plant in the right place. Whereas I go on about soil properties five <laughs> minutes. I just, um, yep, definitely got the hands. Well, you got to know. <laughs> well, you need to know what the what the place is before you know the plant, don't you? Sure. Yep. And people often have more understanding of these things than they realise if they just take the time to actually sit outside. And, you know, really think about and look at their garden at different times of day. And COVID is giving many of us the opportunity to do that like we have never done before. And I reckon a lot of your listeners might be having a better understanding of why some of their plants aren't doing as well as they'd hoped just by spending that additional time outside and really, really realising and tuning into where it's sunny where the water pools. That is such a good point. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that now that people actually have a chance to be a little bit more observant, that they actually have been. And I've been noticing that on social media, a lot of people have, are coming up with them. Um, their minds are always blown in the gardens, especially at the moment I've been noticing. It's such a rewarding time of year too, to be thinking about these things. In uh, in Melbourne, we're in poor neat Indigenous um, season named for the tadpoles. People might also think of it as spring, but it's really when things are really coming to life. That's interesting. I didn't know the um, the Indigenous word for that. Thank you. So what is erosion and what are its causes? Mm, erosion. I'm really glad that you brought that up because just in the last 24 hours, I've been noticing a lot of dust on my car and my neighbour's cars even our bikes, which we keep outside but undercover, have this thin layer of dust on them. And city people often see that as an inconvenience. And of course, I've seen people out there quickly washing it straight off their car. But that is actually wind-blown erosion. That's really valuable topsoil that's come from another part of Australia, probably an agricultural area, where they needed that soil. And it's been eroded and blown by the wind to, to us here in Melbourne. And another feature of spring or poor neat is these heavy downpours of rain. 
And so I've had the good fortune, well, many of us have been walking around in our local parks a lot recently. And after heavy rain, you really notice you can see erosion. You can see water erosion moving gravel off the paths in the park and also out of the garden beds. My kids think I'm a little bit crazy, but I sometimes, occasionally on the weekend, get out and actually collect some of that fantastic soil from the gutter and use it to build up the nature strip garden bed at our house. Because soil that's eroding from one place is a really valuable resource for where, where you know, depending on where it ends up. We don't want to see it in our in our rivers um, and filling up our reservoirs and going out to the sea. But if we can collect the soil before it gets to those places, that's good soil that you can add to your own garden. Absolutely. I mean, people pay top dollar for alluvial, uh, pardon me, top dollar for topsoil to put on top of their gardens and on top of their lawns. And it absolutely is a resource. So is there a name for that topsoil that's reached a new place? Um, yeah, alluvial soil is what I tend to think of alluvial soil as a rich floodplain soil that's been moved by rivers and, and deposited on alluvial plains. Um, yeah, but I guess soil that's moved by erosion is known by lots of different names depending on your perspective. Right. Okay. There you go. Well, I'm glad I learned something today because I've just been calling it all alluvial soil. <laughs> yeah. So there we yeah. go. <laughs> uh, th- thank you for that. So can you explain a little bit about what's meant by soil structure and aggregates, please? Dan, I'm so glad that you asked this because this is actually a really simple concept, but a really useful test that people can do at home easily with their own garden soil as a way of measuring how they've improved the the structure of their soil. So an aggregate is, well, an aggregate's a small lump, really. (laughs) An aggregate is a number of soil, is a concentration, a collection of soil particles held together by different things, but largely held together by organic matter. So if you are adding compost, mulch, or manure to your garden over time, you can anticipate lots of benefits, including improved soil structure. So an increased ability for those mineral particles to be held together into small lumps. That increases the ability of air and water to move easily through your soil. And you can test this. You don't have to send your soil off to a lab to test aggregate stability. You can just take some of these small lumps or aggregates and put them in a saucer of water and you will see particularly if you're able to take some aggregates some soil lumps from different parts of your garden either you know your garden and the nature strip or your garden and someone else's garden you'll see that the ones that have good structure and good structural stability the aggregates hold together even though you put them in water you'll see little bubbles of air come out but you won't see the whole thing fall apart If you take an aggregate of quite a clay soil but that doesn't have much organic matter in it, it might hold together to begin with, you know, quite solidly. You've got a, you know, a solid little lump of clay, but when you put it in water, it just, it's like watching a volcano. It just crumbles and, and, um, yeah, completely, the aggregate itself totally falls apart. So uh, I think there's some some good soil science YouTube videos on aggregate stability definitely something you can do at home to 
look at soil structure. And I do urge our listeners to really take that on board and actually do that soil test because it's such an easy soil test to do at home and you can learn so much about the quality of your soil just from that easy little cheap soil test. Yeah. Let's put a link, Dan, on your fabulous website to some more detailed instructions. Absolutely. And we will do that. And that'll be in the show notes for our listeners. And you can just check out the show notes and just check out those links that we have on those soil test videos. Cool. So can you explain a little bit, why do gardeners turn the soil and what are the pros and cons of tilling? Thanks, Dan. That is an awesome question. And it's really been a change in soil, you know, good soil management philosophy over recent decades, because traditionally we have dug the soil and tilled the soil to um, to deal with weeds and to prepare a soil bed for seeds. We tend to dig and turn over the soil. Um, and a lot of people still have that in mind as, you know, gardening is hard work and involves a lot of digging. More recently, it's been discovered and promoted both within the soil science, but also the large-scale agriculture community and more urban kind of gardening and permaculture community that we don't need to keep digging and turning over the soil, that there are other ways to deal with weeds. And we actually are being kinder to our soil biology. We're looking after the microbes better if we don't keep disturbing them and turning them over. So yeah, it's something to experiment with. I am trying to move away from that constant digging and turning over of the soil in my home very very in my very small home garden um and it does bring up some aesthetic issues because there there might be the surface might not look so so visually nice and then you know maybe you just need to mulch a bit more but yeah there's definitely reason to dig sometimes and certainly you know if you're getting some real waterlogging and compaction issues or if you're needing to prepare area to put in new substantial plants but on the whole I think it's actually quite effective to just add your fertilizer and your mulch and your compost to the surface and let the let the soil biology let the bugs do the work and they'll move it down to the plant roots. I think we're going to go into this subject a lot more in another permaculture episode that we have planned but it is good to know just that you know, that there are pros and cons to tilling. And I certainly wouldn't say one way is bad and one way is good. I think just if you know the consequences of each, you're you're just going to be better equipped. Exactly. Yeah, fit for purpose. And I am definitely going to listen to your permaculture um, podcast coming up. It's going to be great and I do recommend it. It's such an important subject and it's something I'm actually personally very passionate about. So there are lots of problems that we can have – with soil, depending on what's going on in the soil biology and in the soil chemistry. Can you tell us a little bit about what causes crusted soil, please? Crusting. Yeah. So I guess I think what you're talking about when you say crusting is where you get like a hard surface crust on a more of a clayed soil, um, which might be preventing water from infiltrating into your soil because it's been dry for too long. Now, that I'm not an expert in salinity. That's not a space that I've worked in, but I think that crusting can be a result of um, saline soils and can be quite hard to deal with. But I also want to point out that 
biological soil crusts are actually really awesome and super important and you will find um, that they kind of have the opposite effect. So in really arid areas, you'll get these biological crusts forming on the soil which actually attract water and, and help to draw water into the soil. So that's a, you know, that's a high sand environment with a, um, a microbial community on the surface, whereas the crusting that we are initially talking about is a high clay environment where you've got some salt problems. Another problem that can happen with clay soils is that they can become compacted, which means that they're really difficult to dig into. Are you able to explain what causes compaction and how do we deal with compaction as gardeners? Dan, I'm so glad that you've brought that one up because soil compaction is something (laughs) that I think about a lot. Other people might not as they're going for a walk or a run around their local green space. But when I see the maintenance vehicles driving off the paths and onto the grass, you know, they're trying to stay out of people's way, but they are compacting the soil. And even years later, you'll often find that plants struggle to grow in the parts of our urban space, green spaces that, you know, suffer from this, this high traffic. Compaction is squashing, essentially. You, you can compact the soil and sheep compact the soil just by standing on it. But in an urban setting, it's particularly related to um, recreational soils that aren't designed to be driven on, being driven on by vehicles. Um, and so the physical, the, the mineral particles of the soil actually move closer together. And then there's permanently less room for air and water in the soil. And so, of course, the microbiology is less happy because they need air and water. They don't just need the, the physical soil particles. In fact, they really need the gaps, the pores. Um, so soil compaction is, I, I guess there's, there's kind of two things you can do about soil compaction. You can find plants that can cope with it. And by growing plants, you will, um, they, they will, their roots um, will like fluff up the soil, make the soil less dense and less compacted. Uh, but in some situations, that's not possible. And so that's when you really do need to do that physical um, tilling of the soil and yeah, actually dig it up and fluff it up to deal with, but maybe even just some simple kind of deep ripping in strips rather than all uh, all over the surface. But So you've just given us uh, an example of how vegetation can help with compacted soil. What other roles does vegetation play in the overall soil health of an environment? Look, I can't stress it enough in that life builds life. So whatever plants you can grow in the soil generally will increase the health of your soil. I am aesthetically and personality-wise a keen weeder. I love to pull out weeds, but I've recently been trying to hold back on that inclination because in parts of the garden where it's hard to grow anything, weeds are a great start and they can really start to improve your soil such that it then becomes more suitable for you to plant the plants that you really want to be growing there. Wow, such good advice. And uh, I have a great little soundbite there as well. Life builds life. Uh, I think I'm going to have to tweet that out today because it's <laughs> such a good quote. What are some signs of poor soil health that we can spot with the naked eye? That is all about plants. I would say, I'm sorry, (laughs) because I want to say that it's, you know, as a soil scientist, I want to say something directly about soil, but it is 
hard to see below the surface. And so if your plants are not thriving and if they've got discoloured leaves, even if they're not being able to be resilient to pests, that can be an indication that things are not quite right below the ground. So I guess, yeah, that's the sign. I guess that there's if there's no life on the soil, I mean, that's a pretty good indication that it's not going to be healthy. Can you please tell us a little bit about what is soil pH and what does that mean for our plants? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked about pH, Dan, because people often talk about soil pH as the master variable. Now, I've been kind of sceptical about that in the past because there are so many different components to soil um, and pH is just one of them. But soil pH does really affect the availability of other nutrients in the plant. So it's not so much that pH is all important, but that a too high or too low pH means that your plants are not able to access the other nutrients that they need, which may be in the soil. And then particularly at low pH, you can get some nutrients which are otherwise benign to become toxic to plants. So it is worth, and it's again, this is a super easy one to do at home. Manutech soil pH kit. This is available, easily available at any gardening store for about between 10 and $20. And they are developed with CSIRO. So it's a solid scientific underpinning, but it's a really simple test to use. And you just, you know, in 10 minutes, you can mix up a paste of soil with the liquid and add the powder and you can see the colour. You can determine, I guess, uh, maybe not great for that subset of our community who are colourblind, but get someone who isn't colourblind to come and help you and you'll quickly see whether your or what pH your soil is at. And then you can either plant something suitable to that pH or you can try and change the pH if it's really extreme. For some unknown reason, when we bought our property, the pH is like 10 under the clothesline and nothing would grow under the clothesline. So we're uh, just gradually adding a bit of sulphur and uh, letting the weeds grow there to try and get things and pine, pine tree needles and, yeah, mysteries. The mysteries of how people treated the soil before you arrived there. So you say that underneath the, underneath the clothesline is a soil pH of 10, but whereabouts do you, most people generally want that pH to sit? Ah, just like us. Plants like a neutral pH, and that is around seven. So that's water. Water's yeah. around seven. Yeah. A little bit acidic. A lot of plants do like, you know, six. And there's not too many plants that are happy above, you know, above eight and a half, nine. And and I guess once we get to below 4.5, some serious problems are going to start to arise. Is that right? <laughs> you could call them serious problems. I actually work a lot in organic soils or peatlands, and peatlands are unusual soils because they're not derived from mineral material. They're actually derived, the parent material is plants and they're very acidic. So 4.5 is quite common and we often measure pHs down around three. Um, yeah, just a different environment. Very different because I guess if you've got 4.5 on a farm, you're going to get some of that nutrient leaching, which can be devastating. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, you know, there's a lot of, um, I've been involved in research and there's a lot of ongoing work over in WA where a lot of the agricultural areas, a lot of the Western Australian wheat belt has subsoil acidity problems. So the pH might be okay on the surface, but roots need to get down below the surface. And there are lots of pHs um, in the fours in that part of the world. 
It's possible to change soil properties when it comes to pH and many other issues by adding things called amendments, soil amendments. Can you tell us a little bit about what a soil amendment is and how is it different from a fertiliser? Sure. Look, I guess, Dan, I would think of a soil amendment as anything that you add to the soil to amend it. And so my favourite and the first one that I would recommend is any kind of organic matter. So so compost, mulch, manure would be the first amendment for so many different problems. Um, but you can also add chemical amendments like a like an inorganic fertiliser or a lime or a gypsum, depending on what, what issues you've got. I, I have myself added sulphur, so that's another chemical amendment. And in some situations, people will add um, clay or sand as a soil amendment to, to, to change the properties of the soil. Basically, the soil needs to be fit for purpose, right? So it depends what you want to do with it as to what you might amend it with. Right. So an amendment is literally what it sounds like. It's going to amend a particular problem. Hopefully, if you've got, got the right amendment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. If you've got the right amendment. So I'm not going to add gypsum to my soil and expect it to add organic material. I mean, or does gypsum help with that? I don't believe so. I think gypsum is often added for structural problems, but it works best if you add gypsum and organic matter together. Um, yeah, I, one organic fertilizer I've been really wanting to get into is uh, biochar. That one seems so cool to me. <laughs> biochar. I just haven't had a chance yet. Yeah, look. Let me um, encourage yet caution you with regards to biochar because, Dan, just as you would know that all plants are different, all biochars are different. So depending on what plant material was used in the first place was charred to make the biochar, you'll get a very different product. And so the claims of one biochar can't be applied to another if the feedstock plant material or even the like temperature and duration of the charring is different. So just uh, keep that in mind. So we've come to the end of the episode now, Dr. Sam. Can you tell the listeners where can we find out a little bit more about soil and is there something that you're passionate about that you just want to tell the listeners about? I want to tell the listeners about Soil Science Australia. So check out the Soil Science Australia website after you've looked at Dan's fabulous website. Um, And there you'll find... Not only lots more information about soils, but you'll also be able to find a certified uh, professional soil scientist if you need one for a particular project. And a really exciting um, thing which is going on in Australia is we've got a new national advocate for soil who sits in the Department of Premier and Cabinet, and that is Penny Wennesley. I'm very excited to be able to work with her to further the appreciation and careful management of soils in Australia and the federal government is working on a national soil strategy at the moment so let's hope that gets up and gets bipartisan support soon sooner rather than later so we can look after the soils all across this big diverse country it's the most important resource more important than anything I would have thought because civilizations rise and fall from their soil literally absolutely can't eat money you cannot eat money no But thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Sam. This has just been awesome. And I hope that the listeners have learned just as much as I have today, because that was some incredible information. I hope that you come back on again, Sam, and you're welcome anytime. It's a pleasure, Dan. Great talking to you. Make sure you check out Soil Science Australia, as well as the blogs that are linked in the show notes. There's an article I've written that serves as an introduction to soil, and it has a handy little soil triangle diagram 
you'll see what I mean when you actually click on the link. And there's another link to an article I've written that focuses on some of the organisms that we find in the soil, such as bacteria, fungus, insects, insect-like little critters, centipedes, millipedes, nematodes, and others as well.